Orphan Black, the next chapter, is back for season two, and it's bigger than ever. The official continuation of the hit TV show stars Emmy Award-winning actress Tatiana Maslany as all of the clones. And this season, she's joined by original TV show cast members Jordan Gavaris as Felix, Evelyn Brochu as Delphine, and Christian Brune as Donnie. Season two picks up where season one left off with, spoiler alert, the secret of the clones finally exposed to the general public. Hundreds of previously unaware clones grapple with the news that they are part of a massive military science experiment. Meanwhile, anti-clone protesters fight to have the clones' rights restricted. Caught in the middle, the Sestras want peace, and when an unforeseen threat turns their world upside down, they must join forces with former enemies to protect the ones they love. Orphan Black, the next chapter, is available right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to listen and subscribe, or visit realm.fm for more information. I'm Shudder curator Sam Zimmerman. This is the History of Horror Uncut, an essential audio companion to Eli Roth's History of Horror. Eli Roth's History of Horror is a seven-episode docuseries threading the evolution and immortality of the genre and all its terrors within. These are the full, candid interviews, most of which can only be found and heard right here in this podcast. You'll hear how the genre shaped these filmmakers, authors, makeup maestros. You'll hear the personal, unbridled appreciation that only comes from those who know how special horror can be. Welcome to a more intimate history of horror. The History of Horror Uncut is built with the full, raw interviews conducted in production for Eli Roth's History of Horror. So in some cases, Eli leads the talk itself. In others, deeply knowledgeable producer Kurt Sayenga steps in. Today, Kurt's going to talk to something of an unexpected genre maven, Josh Hartnett. So the reason I say he's unexpected is because it's kind of deceptive just how much contribution Josh Hartnett has made to the genre. There's his memorable 90s turns in The Faculty and Halloween H2O. There's the brutal Alaskan vampire movie, 30 Days of Night. And then there's that recent absolutely stunning gothic horror series, Penny Dreadful. So Hartnett has now run the gamut from aliens, vampires, werewolves to iconic slashers and so much more. So here he's going to get into his genre favorites. He's more of a fan than he even thinks he is. His career, the freedom of performing within the genre, and learning how to perform within it from greats like Jamie Lee Curtis and Danny Houston. And of course, he's going to talk stepping into the archetype of an iconic creature on Penny Dreadful. Here now is Josh Hartnett. Listen up, ghouls. So, tell me who you are. My name is Josh Hartnett. Um, I'm an actor. I've been in a few horror films. The first film that I was hired for, actually, was a film called The Faculty. Uh, Robert Rodriguez directed it. A lot of young actors at the time were in it. It was an ensemble piece, uh, and that is more of a sci-fi film. It was Miramax before it was the Weinstein Company. They had me in a deal in which I would also shoot Halloween H2O at the same time. You know, that was the first film that I had that came out and the general public saw. But I was shooting them both simultaneously, parts of them. It was, it was a pretty full-on introduction to creepy things. And Halloween H2O, tell me about your part in that. Uh, well, I played Jamie Lee Curtis's son, uh, John. I was 19 years old, and I did a reading with Jamie Lee, and she decided I was you know, right for the role, and I had no idea what I was doing. Asked her a few questions about what it was like to be on set, what she was gonna, what she expected of me, and that sort of thing, and then just winged it throughout the entire production. I had no idea what I, what I was getting into. Turns out the people really liked the film, and it sort of launched my career, and um, you know, I'm very thankful for that. I, all I knew was that when Michael Myers showed up, you were supposed to be 
about as terrified as you could possibly imagine. Michelle Williams was in the film as well, and uh, the two of us were both sort of swapping stories about what scared us most and like how we would kind of get into the scenes was to sort of discuss those things. We were also shooting in a place in Silver Lake here in Los Angeles up on an old convent up on a hill, and it had been abandoned for some time, so it was a pretty creepy setting in the middle of the night, shooting long hours through the night. The director, Steve Miner, sort of made sure that we felt the atmosphere that was going to be appropriate for the for the piece. And what sort of stories did you, you know, did scare you? Well, I mean, I'm difficult because I'm not afraid of much except probably sharks and needles. I don't have a first moment in horror, watching a horror film that really terrified me. Aside from seeing Jaws when I was a little kid, and I think that's you know, destroyed my concept of sharks, as I think it did for an entire generation. Hence, we're just overfishing them. <laughs> okay, back to the topic. A movie that scared me the most when I was young was uh, Poltergeist. That was a film that I saw way too early in my life. I shouldn't have seen it. A friend of mine's mother let him rent the film, and we watched it, you know, some Friday night, and I had to walk home three houses, and I just sprinted, you know, because it was just, it. I didn't sleep for about a week. And then Jaws, obviously the, the fear of sharks came from that. When you're on set, being able to see behind the curtain, it's very, you know, Wizard of Oz, and you don't, you don't fear Oz after, after that. And being able to sit down and talk with the guy who played Michael Myers, the stunt guy who was playing Michael Myers, in between takes, you know, they, you know, took the mystery out of it, took the fear out of it for me. So you're in this film, and at this point, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis is your mother, so she's, you know, she starred in, uh, well, Psycho is arguably ground zero for the modern, you know, kind of slasher film, mm -hmm. but, uh, but Halloween is really the thing that kicked everything off. Yeah. So what was that like? Did she bring any particular wisdom to bear on how to uh, behave in a film like that? Uh, like I said, I was just getting started and had no idea what I was doing. So if I felt, if I, if I wasn't feeling it, it wasn't coming across on screen. And she just, she gave me that old Laurence Olivier quote, basically, you know, he just act it, you know, just pretend. <laughs> and I was like, oh, it made me, it, it hurt me deeply because I didn't think, I didn't really know how to pretend correctly. You know, I just had to, uh, I had to really feel it. So we, we had a few discussions about that. But the interesting thing that you bring up, I mean, Psycho being the, the inception of the horror movie genre in terms of not monster horror, uh, her mother was the star of that, and uh, Janet was in the film as well, playing her mother. So, in a way, I'm the third generation of uh, straight out of horror or straight out of Psycho. Yeah, did you grow up watching like any slasher films? Or? I mean, I saw Halloween, of course. I saw Friday the Thirteenth, Nightmare on Elm Street, and the things that scared me most were the psychological aspects of those films it wasn't it wasn't the sort of jump cuts and, and and the scary music and suddenly he's there it was the weird like being able to go to sleep and not knowing if you're asleep or not uh, in nightmare on elm street not being able to wake up out of a dream that sort of a thing started to really play on me uh in in my own life poltergeist got to me because it was that concept of a dimension that's just beyond reach and if you kick up the wrong dust on this planet you're going to have all these spirits come up and they're going to animate objects that you know you thought were normal objects it's such a brilliant concept because suddenly then you're afraid of 
literally everything in your house. Anything could be, you know, a danger. As far as slasher goes, those films were, those are the ones that I, I saw when I was a kid, the typical ones from the 80s. You know, Sojourner and Penny Dreadful. Penny Dreadful obviously dealt with a lot of uh, famous gothic archetypes. Yeah. So were those, uh, did you like, the, for instance, the universal monster versions of those? I did. Uh, you know, I, there's, a, there's a campy aspect to those films that I found fun, you know, and I think they were able to make fun of themselves at the time. I mean, didn't Abbott and Costello do a few versions with the mummy and with Frankenstein and eventually yeah. yeah you know I mean it does it moves on to that but I mean at the beginning even even at the beginning there was something surreal something uh, sort of over dramatized about it so I'm, I'm thinking specifically about Frankenstein as opposed to Mary Shelley's the original was more like I guess what we tried to pull out in Penny Dreadful the creature was a bit different than he is in our universal lore and I think what we tried to do with Penny Dreadful was go back to the original books, the original texts, and make things as close to that as possible, while still having a little bit of fun, you know? All of those old archetypes are fun to play with and uh, turn on their head, if possible, in a new way, because they've been seen so many times. But as far as the original, I really liked uh, the original Universal ones. Uh, I was into The Wolfman, I was into The Mummy, and Frankenstein. I think those were the ones. I didn't really get into the Bella Lugosi flicks. I don't know why, until I saw Ed Wood, and then I wanted to go back and watch them, and then I, I did, but that was, you know, late 90s. Made those characters, the universal characters that you liked, uh, compelling, do you think, that made them iconic? Well, I mean, partially the performances, but I mean, as far as Frankenstein goes, it was, that first film is so beautifully rendered. I, I couldn't say why it struck a nerve with people when they were, from my experience was that ultimately everyone feels like an outsider internally. Ultimately, everyone feels like they're somehow apart from society when they're, when they're a child because they're just getting their legs and learning what it's like to socialize. And we see lots of other people who seem to be born to it, but I think nobody really feels born to it. And so when a film like that is about someone who is entirely on the outside because he has been re remade, your heart goes out to him, especially the way that they uh, portrayed him in that first film. That combined with the hubris of uh, a scientist taking his own ambition too far is something else that I think an adult could relate to. And so it hit on a couple of different levels. As a kid, I really felt connected to Frankenstein's monster, not so much to Frankenstein himself. I think that goes for a lot of those original horror classics. Those characters are sort of stand-ins for people that are on the fringe of society or out, you know, cast, castaways, cast-outs. Yeah. What was the depiction of vampires in 30 Days of Night? I loved how brutal the vampires were in 30 Days of Night, and I loved that they were part of a society that had been living in a sort of subjugated state for a long time, that they weren't these princes sitting on in castles. They'd been scrapping and scraping to stay alive for a long period of time, and so when they figured out that they could have this enormous feast, they all got very excited and came up, and it just seemed very logical to me. It plays on all of the original ideas of a vampire. It doesn't really add much. In fact, I think it strips away a couple of things. And I, I like that as well. It was sort of a pared down, pseudo-realistic, brutalist version of a vampire. I, did, I dug it. What's the plot of Halloween H2O? The plot of H2O. I can tell you what my character was up to. Okay. Well, okay. Tell me what your character so, is. So 
Uh, John is at the school. It's a sort of academy of sorts. His mother is there as a teacher. Her, her mother has a boyfriend who is also a teacher. And there's, there's a lot of tension between mom and son. Just he's naturally growing up. He meets a girl. He falls in love. And Michael Myers comes back. All the, all the old mysteries come back. And we spend the majority of it running away from him. That's about, that's about it. That's the plot. <laughs> Fair enough. That's good. Okay. And uh, with 30 Days of Night, what happens? All right. Well, in 30 Days of Night, my character is a sheriff in Barrow, Alaska, which has been renamed recently, actually. Barrow is now a different town, and I can't remember the name of it. He's a sheriff of Barrow, Alaska, and in Barrow, Alaska, apparently the sun is down for almost a month in the middle of winter, hence the 30 Days of Night title. And when that month of darkness occurs, everybody, a lot of people leave Barrow. And the ones who stay sort of, you know, hold up and they, they go a little nuts. And, and it's not the most healthy environment to be in. You know, we all need a little sunlight sometimes. But vampires don't. Vampires have figured out that this is a really good place to go and have a, a, a low-effort meal, a sort of banquet that can go on for a full month, and then they can go back and relax for the rest of the year, apparently. And so the vampires close in on the town as dusk is setting, and then the rest of us who are there try to survive for a month. Again, we spend a lot of time running away. Eventually, of course, you find yourself in a semi-vampiric state, basically. Yes. Yeah. 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 Well, my character doesn't make it all the way to the end of the film, uh, so I have become a almost vampire who has to fight the head vampire, who's played by Danny Houston. We had a scene in which I inject vampire blood into my, into my veins. Felt like kind of 90s in, in that way, but it took hold. I started to become a vampire. We have a big fight, and I kill the big bad vampire. And then every, all the rest of the vampires run away, and we're, we're saved. The few, few remaining people are, are saved. The memorable head punch. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yes, I saved the town by punching through a vampire's head with my fist. Now, your performance in that thing, you're, you know, very, it's very agonized because you're the one who has to be agonized through that whole picture. Meanwhile, Danny Houston gets to, I presume, have a lot of fun. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Danny was in great spirits throughout the entire film process, and I was, uh, I was bearing the more heavy load. I was doing the heavy lifting. I found over the last few years I've been playing a lot of characters in agony, a lot of characters in, like, internal tumult. It's uncomfortable, but it, sometimes it's compelling. So I think it's good for a character, especially in these sort of larger-than-life scenarios, to feel like he's dealing with real issues, uh, because I think that brings people in and allows them to believe in the story a little bit, and then the scares are scarier. Now, in, in this case, you know, is that something we can do in horror films? You can express certain kind of emotions that on a larger scale, perhaps, than you might if you're playing a little chamber piece? Yes, I mean, definitely. I mean, but that's the interesting thing about Penny Dreadful. It was both. You know, it was both the upstairs, downstairs, you know, English chamber piece, and it was, you know, the larger than life, Grand Guggenau horror genre. What I like, when I appreciate it, the film, especially in the horror genre, it's when it has both. When you're allowed to kind of become very intimate with the characters, and then the larger than life sort of stuff rears up. And usually that stuff is a metaphor for something, basically, so sure. often these horror films. So 
even you know, Thirty Days of Night. What do you what do you think that film was about? It and being a you know kick-ass vampire movie. That definitely wasn't about getting to know someone who is outside of your comfort zone. That was the that was fear the uh, fear the fear the stranger film. What would uh, what would Steve Niles say about it? What did he say about it? <laughs> Steve is remarkably lacking in introspection about his work. <laughs> So so am I on this interview. It's like I really I can't land any insights. I know they inserted, uh, and I think it was David Slade and the you know the other uh, the other writers who came in put in the divorce aspect to it. And yeah, that seemed to be an attempt to also make it you know somewhat about you know relationship dynamics and appreciating the people who are in front of you before because they can go away. They can turn into a vampire and punch someone's face out. All of those add-ons that make a film a film and not a graphic novel, I think sometimes add. Some t- it depends on the t- it depends on the film entirely. But in that that film, I think it added to the weight of the characters, and I think that that made them more important than just having them be chattel or some sort of you know prey. And there was more texture to all the characters, I think, including the vampires in the film because we're just allowed more time. That's the odd thing about graphic novels to film adaptations as opposed to novels to film adaptations. You just you lose so much from a novel to a film. But sometimes from a graphic novel to a film you're allowed to expand a bit. In that case that was that was what we were able to do. Yep. Watchmen being a notable exception, but otherwise <laughs> That's not horror, we're not talking yeah, about that. No. We talked a little about the believability aspect of it, but if you could speak just a little bit about that, what's riding on you and the other actors essentially to take something and make it something an audience won't immediately reject in its face as being ridiculous. I think the most fun performance in 30 Days of Night was Ben Foster's, because he gets to come in early and he gets to be the first sign of something really bizarre happening to the characters. So up until that point, you're playing a character who's very simply going through a divorce and locking up the town like he's done many times, and he's going to have a very lonely month. The other characters are all going about their business in a very simple manner, and then suddenly there's this stranger who has a very interesting dilemma and no concept of, of where he comes from, and the way that he comports himself is just unlike anyone that they've, they've met. And he's talking about all these crazy things. I, I think that would be de rigueur for the Los Angeles Police Department, but in Barrow, Alaska, you don't get many people just passing through. So that sets the tone. And he did such a fantastic job of taking it from a place that seemed believable and really making this gigantic performance out of this very short period of time that he was on screen. That sets the stage for the rest of the film. And so I feel like, you know, you're just giving your audience uh, a sort of you have to give them a template for what the film's gonna be like early on. And I think that's why there are so many pre-titles, sort of scary things that happen in horror films, because you want people to know that what they're getting into before it goes dies back down into just the normalcy of everyday life. It's portending the, well, whatever. Like Get Out, basically the first scene you get out, you know, it establishes the, you know, it just hits yeah. you over the head with this kind of really shocking violence, basically. And yeah. And then they're going on vacation. Yeah. 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 Speaking of which, are there any contemporary, you know, horror trends that excite you or interest you? I think the fact that Get Out is receiving so much attention critically is just fantastic. That trend is great. The whole 
originally I think what horror was trying to do was something that I think superhero movies are trying to do now uh, in that they were trying to, in an escapist way, give you a little bit of a, a mirror on your society. It's nice to see horror movies stepping up and taking that mantle back. You know, that film definitely was more of a sociological experiment than it was a horror, horror movie in its inception, I think. And it just was, you know, it worked so well and was terrifying. So that's exciting to me just because there's the added depth. You know, there's layers of, of intrigue there. If you could play a, uh, a movie monster, which one would you want to be? Well, I sort of did The Wolfman. Uh, even though he wasn't my favorite when I was a kid, I think playing Dracula would be a lot of fun. I know a lot of people... I take that back. Jekyll and Hyde, I think, would be the most fun to play. I would love to play Jekyll and Hyde. And what's attractive about the Jekyll and Hyde character in that story? The duality. The fact that if played correctly, you can see both those characters in each character. And you can f and what I mean by that is is that the self doesn't change the like intentions do and the way that one goes about it. So to play him as completely split personality would be wrong. It's they're both machinations of an internal beast or desire or something, you know. Yeah, I, I think to be able to play a character like that well would be a lot of fun if the film, if you found the right film, if it was the right film or the right TV show. Which um, you know, of the screen Jekyll and Hyde's, who do you think pulled that off the best? The original, what was it uh, Lionel Barrymore? Who, uh, I think so, although the one I always think of Spencer Tracy. Right, right. Because he probably gave the performance that's more like what you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's a great, that's, in my opinion, that's the way to do it. It's just this eruption of a different, you know, the id versus the ego or whatever. There's nothing tampening him down from becoming this thing anymore. That internal barbarity, you know, which we all, I think, have a little bit of. Yeah. You're in, a, in Pain Dreadful is a series, obviously, that unfolded over a you know, set of episodes. So are you, were you able to do things in the longer format that you couldn't do in a film or is the film component kind of ideal for a horror film because it's you know you're locked in this block of time where things can end and everybody can die the, the funny thing is everybody dies you know you can still bring in new characters they can die all the time you can have lots of people dying on and you can have more people dying when you're doing a tv show I really enjoyed from an actor's perspective being able to play that character very straight you know, to be able to try to understand what his dilemma is. The fact that he's sort of going through a similar experience, except he has amnesia about it, a sort of Jekyll and Hyde situation. We, John Logan, who created the, the show, and I had a lot, you know, tons of discussions about what Ethan actually knows about his werewolf counterpart, what he remembers from these experiences. And what we came to was, at, at the beginning, he knows that something's happening, but he's not sure what he thinks he could be, just a murderer. And then by the end of the show, he's very aware of what he is, and he uses it to kind of foster that, that journey and make it full and realistic. It, it was nice to have a lot of hours to do that because it's a big shift in a person's psyche. And for him to become as brutal as he became at times, to start him at a place that he's almost passive and bring him to that place where he's trying to actively save people by becoming this monster is uh, is something that took time 
yeah, I really welcomed the experience of working on that because it was it was the first time I've ever dove into a character for that that length of time. And uh, you know, werewolves aren't used as much as they perhaps could be in popular culture. Or... Yeah. Well, I think that the werewolf is more other than we. It's a little bit unrelatable. Once you have the werewolf, it's more wolf than man in a way. We tried to stay away from that, especially with the prosthetics. It's almost entirely my face. It's just a little piece up here and then hair. Just to allow the humanity to still be there for the audience. So I think in popular culture, I think that's the problem. That's where people are sort of separating themselves from the characters. We all want to relate to the characters that we, that we watch on screen. And that one is less relatable. Now you're kind of more of a Lon Chaney kind of werewolf, right? So yeah, you can yeah, because you can still yeah. see the yeah see there's a guy there. Yeah, so. yeah I did a lot of jumping around like that. Not like the American Werewolf of London, where it's a no. full-on werewolf. Yeah, you know, so like, yeah, would have saved me a lot of shooting days if they would have just you know gone CGI. <laughs> um, and was that fun? I mean, was it fun to be a werewolf? Yeah, the prosthetic part of it. Well, again, character is so much conflict. So being able to sort of release in the form of werewolf was fun, but it was a big secret through the first 10 episodes, 11 episodes. And then it was used so fleetingly for the second season that I didn't get to do a lot with him as a werewolf. Just like one shot here, one shot there. And then by the end of the second season, we're getting more into like him being owning himself as a werewolf for understanding what he is and then there were more scenes with him as a werewolf and then did get to let go in that way it is it's a nice release from like the tension of the character who is this a werewolf is pretty single-minded and that's easier to play are certain kinds of horror certain kinds of characters better suited for different time periods it's like what would would those characters work today in a modern day setting i think so yeah I think they definitely would. Uh, it'd be an interesting thing to see. Uh, and some of them, you know, have been updated. It just depends. You have to be clever about the way you update it. If you're going to update uh, Frankenstein or Dracula, you can't set it in Transylvania or, you know, in some, on some remote mountain somewhere because it loses its immediacy. It loses its, If you updated it correctly, yeah, of course, those archetypes would still be a lot of fun to see them interact with our current environment. But I don't think that people do updates all that well sometimes. There's a lot of horror films that just don't work in the updated fashion. And, and uh, vampires have definitely made their way into more modern films in different guises, but even the kind of typical Dracula has made its way into modern films. Dracula-style uh, vampire. I'm thinking of uh, Interview with the Vampire that spans time, but it ends up in modern era. But yeah, I, I, yeah of course, I think they could, all, they could all be updated if done well. Speaking of vampire films, let me ask you about um, first interview with the vampire. What did, what did you think of that film? At the time, I really liked it. I was, I think it came out and I was still in high school. It must have been like 94, 95. I didn't really know Anne Rice's books. And so I was kind of blown away by the world of the story. And it's very romantic, you know, it's a very romantic film. And I was a young kid who was into art and theater and, you know, I was a very romantic kid, so I was. I thought it was kind of it was kind of a great interpretation. I haven't seen it in a long time, though. I don't know if it stands up. Have you seen it recently? Nope. No. Okay. <laughs> uh, to do that, yeah. yeah. Uh, yep. Uh, what I did see recently also is Coppola's, you know, version of Dracula. I loved Coppola's Dracula. 
Copa's Dracula must have come out a couple years before that, like 92 or something like that. I saw that, and what I appreciated about that was just the level of art direction, just how creative that was as a film, and what a, what a mood it set, and how great Jerry, Gary Oldman's performance was. All of those things elevated that story to a level that it was, I mean, it's, an exci- it's, a, it's a work of art. Like, there are so many things in that film that you see now in films, and they're still a little bit exciting to watch. When he was doing Dracula as a beast sort of point of view stuff, the way that he shot that was so exhilarating and terrifying. And we hadn't seen that before. And some of the prosthetics were just so scary. Like, you still have them seared into my mind. Like Dracula in the when he's when he's not quite fully out of his pupation or you know that that mode and he's in the crate it's just oh god yeah it's terrifying Gary Oldman just licking the razor and uh, you know that hair do you ever do you ever see uh, this is something that I've I've talked a lot about and I feel bad for saying this actually but have you ever seen the Great British Bake Off do you know what that is Mary Berry and Gary Oldman as Dracula look a lot alike. Go back and check it out. I love that show, and I love Mary Berry, but, like, there's a similarity there. Yeah, I see it now. <laughs> <laughs> and that film also, of anything, is about the most perfect realization of the gothic sensibility, I think. So. Yeah, but it, it, it took what we understood as gothic, and it added a layer of... It, it felt almost like just he was dealing with all the concepts of early film. He was like, what would have happened if someone tried, had an unlimited budget and today's resources in the 1920s and were trying to make the metropolis of vampire films? It said so much about film and about that time period in Dracula. And yeah, it was In this part where he's on the street and they film it through what looks like to be an old camera. Yeah, yeah. So. Yeah, that and the like eye in the sky thing. And like, there's so many tricks that felt very old, but were updated in such a beautiful way. It's just really, like, really special film. Full of great performances. Anthony Hopkins' performance of that is fantastic as well. That's one of my favorite uh, Coppola films. Uh, there are others, but it is one of my favorites for sure. Does any one of those subgenre interest you more than another, or is there something you'd like to work in, like do a ghost story or something? I'd like to do a real ghost story. What I'm more interested in and what I think Get Out pulls off very well is that it exists in our world without any sort of... Um, I mean, it's just pushing the bounds of what people might be capable of, but it's not... It, it doesn't involve magic. There's an element of sort of pseudo-magic with the T and stuff like that, but I would love to do an actual ghost story. That would be really interesting. Or if... I'm, I'm, I'm also very interested in, like, sci-fi that's brutally realistic that exists, like, with the things that are here now. And like Black Mirror kind of... Black Mirror is amazing. Yeah. And I find that to be one of the most horrific things. It's terrifying to watch. And it's also so much fun. So those sort of the, that sort of stuff really interests me. This last question, one of the last questions, fast zombies or slow zombies? <laughs> fast zombies. I like fast zombies. I, I understand what the point was for having slow zombies, not just logistically, but as a stylistic choice and as a... I, I get it, but I, I like the sort of 28 Days Later zombie version that they're going to get you, you know? And you better run fast. <laughs> You're not going to be tripping over any lamp cords and 
you know, getting up and running away again. Yeah, the slow zombie threat seems like still a manageable threat, perhaps. So, as an actor, as a, as a person trying to play the person who's being chased, it's much easier when you're running away from a fast zombie. Let's put it that way. Because I'm guessing the whole slow zombie thing, because the sense of dread, that whole like impending doom sensibility that they try to create with the slow zombie is great to watch. But, I mean, as, as an actor, I think it'd be really difficult to be, you know, constantly running and tripping and be like, oh no, and they're a foot closer, and then run again, and somehow they're still there. And, but the thing is, eventually they overwhelm you, is, this, is the thing. Like, eventually, they're not stopping to eat. They're not stopping to, uh, well, I mean, unless they're stopping to eat one of you. <laughs> it's an unstoppable force. That's the thing that's terrifying. But it's not, like, immediately scary. That's the thing that I, that I don't get. And do you have any favorite demonic possession films? Everyone says The Exorcist. Uh, yeah, I like The Exorcist a lot. With demonic possession, in our case, we also include things like The Brood, you know, some of the Cronenberg stuff. Oh, yeah, you know, yeah. And uh, Rosemary's Baby, right. you know? Yeah. The Omen. Yeah, all of those things are, are fantastic. I mean, even, even The Fly is a version of demonic possession which is an incredible film. Cronenberg did so many good ones. He did, no, John Carpenter did The Thing. The Thing was great, too. And that was, we, we had a sort of, Third Days of Night has a lot of The Thing in it. Ultimately, yeah, do you think the road has been paved with the success of maybe Get and Get Out for things, you know, horror films that are uh, actually somewhat better financed and more serious of intent? I think there's going to be a, a few that involve top-notch, people and uh, producers, directors, and the teams will be fantastic. Will that change the way that the films turn out? I don't know. I mean, I think there's a, I think what's been nice about the horror genre over the years is that it took a lot of ingenuity to make a good film, and it helps to push the process of filmmaking forward just a little bit. When, when someone will make a small-budget film that really scares the pants out of, off of you and it gets a lot of people into, into the seats, and it does it by using some conventional concept in a new way or by changing the way they use film. Juan Bayona, who directed uh, the first couple episodes of Penny Dreadful and is now doing the new Jurassic Park, which, by the way, that I think it's the first preview that was just released, is really kind of horror-y. It's great. He directed a film called The Orphanage that was very creepy, and it didn't use the sort of typical... I don't know. Um, there were no, there weren't many jump cuts in it. There was none of the sort of typical stuff to scare you. It was just a really well-told story, and it was scary as hell. And that launched his career. You know, sometimes a big budget really helps, but sometimes a big budget makes things sort of flaccid. Hey, can't get enough of the conversation? Eli Roth's History of Horror is now streaming on Shudder, full and commercial-free. At Shudder, we're the best selection in streaming genre. It's handpicked and curated by experts, including me. We cover the amazing spectrum of horror thrillers and suspense, including breakout revenge essentials like Mandy and Revenge, all-time classic The Changeling, horror fantasy hit series A Discovery of Witches, and our new Shudder original documentary, Horror Noir, A History of Black Horror. Start your free two-week trial with promo code SHUDDERPOD. That's promo code S-H-U-D-D. E-R-P-O-D. History of Horror Uncut is a Shudder original podcast. Hosted by Sam Zimmerman, produced by Liam Finn, sound designed by Jeremy Lee, music composed by Michael Tioli. 
Special thanks to executive producers Eli Roth, Kurt Sienga, Jonathan Koch, Stephen Michaels, James McNabb, Allison Berkeley, and Joseph Freed, as well as the AMC Networks and AMC Studio Development and Production teams who allowed us at Shudder to make this. For Shudder, Owen Shiflett, Nicholas Lazo, and Robin Jones. This podcast is protected under the laws of the United States and other countries, and its unauthorized duplication, distribution, or exhibition may result in civil liability and criminal prosecution. Country of first publication, United States of America, History of Horror, Uncut.